Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm your host, Christopher Hurtado, and I'm joined on this episode by my guest co-host and good friend, Travis Patton, who's back on the podcast for the third time. Right, Travis? Yeah, you guys are really getting desperate. <laughs> we had a great conversation with Travis uh, on an earlier episode on Dante, uh, on the on the ascent in Dante, and we had a conversation on classical contemplation. And I probably should have gotten together the episode numbers for that, but you scroll through the episodes and find that or whatever episode grabs your attention and listen to that. I do recommend those episodes with Travis. Thank you for coming back on the podcast, Travis. You're welcome. And we also did something the other day, Christopher, on your sister podcast. That's right. That's right. On uh, Latter-day Peace Studies Presents, Come Follow Me, we talked about Exodus 1 through 6. And actually, we went into an introduction of the entire book of Exodus and really the rest of the Pentateuch and maybe even the Hexateuch, right? And that's why I got the idea to have you on this podcast to talk about our own personal Exodus, the personal significance of the, can I say, archetypal Exodus? Not the exodus that happened uh, in in ancient uh, Egypt, right? But the exodus that we all have to go through in some sense, uh, as we as we all find ourselves in some sense enslaved in one for one way or another. Yep, definitely. Yeah. So let's. I think we we said we're going to start with a little bit of a an overview of Exodus, since not everyone listens to both podcasts, right? Yeah, you know, and I think maybe even before that, you know, what you what you were saying there kind of got me thinking a little bit that we we need to we need to be comfortable reading the scriptures in such a way that we are not worried about getting the right answer. That we're not worried about, you know, I, we get so caught up on understanding uh, you know, like getting getting the correct interpretation of an episode. The or correct interpretation. The, yeah, getting the right doctrine out of this that we're supposed to, right? What is the official interpretation of this? I mean, we do, the, we do this as Latter-day Saints, um, but it's not just a Mormon thing. I, I really think it's an American thing, you know, where we want to, you know, know the right answer to things. You know, part of it's from our educational system where we're not, um, where we don't study very much literature and philosophy, relatively speaking, right? So we don't learn to look at things in a multifaceted way. Uh, you know, it's really interesting if you look at a a page of the Talmud, you know, this Jewish collection of teachings, uh, you know, you have a, a verse of the scriptures in, you know, just a small verses, like in a corner of the page, and then you have a row of commentary going around that, and then another row like that. So there's actually, you're actually seeing layers of interpretation on the page. And when you study the scriptures that way in the Jewish tradition, you say, okay, well, so-and-so said this about this verse, and so-and-so said this about this verse. Right. I mean, we're not trying to get to and then it's like, well, what do you think about this? Right. And then you can take a look at this and, and interpret it and you pull out different authorities to bolster your position and this sort of thing. But you're you're in, uh, invited to think about it instead of just getting, you know, the official position. And uh, in Exodus, I think this is really key as we go through here, because it's like you say, it's got such a beautiful pattern for key aspects of our own life, you know, things that we go through and things that we have to go through. And if we're not able to read ourselves into the text, then then we miss this. You know, if we're caught up on trying to understand the details and, you know, little, you know, geography, and I mean, all that stuff's important, but it's just one aspect of it, right? Like when you and I would teach Dante, you know, begin the class every time saying, okay, the, the goal here is to understand what Dante's trying to say and to see what we can get out of it, right? It's the contrast between 
exegesis where you're taking the text and trying to explain it and look in the you know what it means in the context of the times and eisegesis where you're reading into it you know what what can i see in this what does this mean to me i mean both of those are absolutely legitimate ways and uh, you know part of this is you know kind of this left brain right brain thing that we have in our culture where we value logic and reason and uh, less or more than we do viewing things contextually and artistically and creatively and so forth. Yeah, I remember when we when we taught Dante together, we would read together with the students, with the class, a canto. It takes about 10 minutes to read it out loud. And then we would ask them what they got out of it. And what they got out of it may or may not have been what Dante intended. And because there are so many answers to that, just like in Talmud, right, it may be that well, sometimes there's not there's not any agreement whatsoever, and it could be that their interpretation is as valid as the greatest Dantes, right? The, the greatest Dante scholar's interpretation, and no matter you know, regardless, it's valid for them. And so, what you get when you read the scriptures, whatever it is you get, is valid for you. And and we don't have to worry as Americans who haven't studied literature and philosophy as Europeans do, or as Latter Day Saints about the one, what is it, the the only true and living interpretation of this verse upon the face of the earth, right? We don't have to go for that. We can go for whatever it is we get for ourselves. And I think that's really what the church manual, the Come Follow Me manual, is trying to tell us when it tells us at the beginning of every lesson to record our impressions. You know, Riley and I have talked about the idea, it, it was around the the vision where Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon get the vision of the three degrees of glory. They're reading from, not from somewhere in the New Testament where they could have gotten something like that. They're just reading about heaven and hell. That's two levels. And one of them is not of glory, right? Just heaven and hell. And they get this vision. And so I think they show us how to do it, right? You, you read the scriptures and it's something, somewhere in between the lines, something comes to you. Yeah. And, that, and those are the things that really shape your life that bring, you know, when you can, when you can take episodes from the scriptures, when you can take verses and this sort of thing and use them to give order and meaning to your own life, then the tapestry of which your life is made becomes so much more rich. You know, we have ways of dealing with situations. We know how to go into a situation with a template. I mean, we're used to this, you know, when we go to the temple, right? Where, and it's, it's, gets, you know, it's harder and harder to do because we're, there's less involvement in it. But, you know, back when in the first days of the, of the temple, in the, in the original uh, ceremonies, when they were in their fullest length, which was very long, uh, you know, you would do all of the things of acting out the, the pattern of Adam and Eve, right? I mean, you would actually go lay on the floor, you'd close your eyes. And, uh, you know, I mean, you were really involved in this. And so in the temple, we're used to knowing, we're used to seeing this uh, scripture in this way, where we look at it, as a template for living. It gives us a way to view our lives, organize ourselves, and, and see where we're going and get oriented with a template, which, of course, is related to the word temple. So, Yeah, you know, on the last episode, Ben and I recorded for Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me, we were dealing with Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, giving him this idea that he could create a hierarchy and delegate what he was doing personally much in the manner of the Savior and sitting and seeing, you know, having the people come to him one by one and, and ministering to them. And so, yes, you could do that. I mean, this was timely advice. It was maybe even good advice. But the question is, when you create this hierarchy, are you going to keep in mind always what is the intention of it such that that is what's held out as, you know, and, and that's the purpose of the hierarchy and not the hierarchy itself becomes the focus, right? The focus is on serving the people and ministering to the people. So Jethro introduces an efficiency, and we see the same thing in the temple, you know, as you pointed out, Travis, that we spend a lot less time in the temple, and, and there are a lot fewer steps nowadays. You can even separate what is this preparatory washing and anointing ritual that's supposed to get ready, just as we saw the Moses preparing the people to come into the presence of God. That can even be separated. Oh, that's already done. Or, you know, the only time that you actually go through that, uh, the whole thing, right, is when you actually go through for yourself. So if you're serving in the temple as a proxy, you still have the opportunity, I think, 
to go through all of the steps at one time, but we don't always take that opportunity. And so the whole thing becomes sort of fragmented in that way. And there's an efficiency to that, just like the efficiency that Jethro was introducing. But do but what's lost? You know, what's the what's the cost? Yeah, yeah. That, that's always the uh, the balancing act, right? And some people are on, you know, want more want more efficiency. Some people want less, and you, you know. So it's uh, yeah, it's a balancing act there. What it's interesting too when we look at Exodus, we have to realize that it's not an individual, isolated unit. It's the second book of the Pentateuch, right? Pentateuch meaning the five books of Moses. You know, pent as we know, pentagram, so forth, meaning meaning a five sided star. Uh, you know, it's even related to the word punch, right? Because punch has five ingredients originally. So this uh, is the five books of Moses. We have Exodus being the second one. Would that be my five knuckles? No, because you should really only punch with the first two knuckles. But that's this is the wrong podcast for that, Christopher. This is the Latter-day Peace Studies podcast. We're not getting into pugilism. Thank you. So we're talking about punch, the, the one you drink. Punch is the drink. Okay. So the original, you know, punch comes from a, you know, a, in the old Sanskrit uh, word. I believe it's Sanskrit anyhow. For the five ingredients, you know, you have alcohol, you have water. Boy, we're really diverging from the point of this podcast. So let's... Now, this is a latter-day contemplation podcast. Well, you're the one who started talking about punching people. So you so do no know punching people, no drinking alcohol. Back to Exodus. Okay, let's keep going then. So the Pentateuch. We have, uh, you know, Genesis, Exodus, uh, you know, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then a lot of people will will talk about the Hexateuch and include the Book of Joshua in there because Joshua is when uh, the Egyptian or when the Israelites actually make it into the Promised Land. Right, you've got the conquest of Canaan and so forth. So if we take those six books together, they're a single unit. And uh, the first book, the first word in the Book of Exodus is "and," so it's clearly linking us to. Genesis. And what's going on in Genesis? Well, uh, you know, Joseph has, has risen to a place of power, second in command over all of Egypt, brings his family in, saves them, uh, but they've now left the promised land. They've left Canaan, and uh, and now they're in Egypt. The story starts where another uh, king comes to town, and he doesn't know anything about Joseph, has forgotten all the gratitude he should have, and just looks at these Israelites and says, okay, we've got to get rid of these guys. We're worried about these and we've got to get them under control. And so that's where we pick up here. Um, there's more that we're going to see because we're going to see that Exodus actually is a, in the story of the Exodus and in the story of, in the book of Exodus in general, we're going to see that it's actually a reversal of the fall from Eden. Right? We are going to end the book with the tabernacle, you know, this portable temple where God is where the people now dwell with God again, like they did in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. And so that's the trajectory here. We have a fall, we have an exodus, we have a return to communion with God. Travis, when you say that the first word of Exodus is and, this isn't the first word in the King James Version, right? This is this is in the in the original. But isn't it true too that and I've studied less biblical Hebrew than you have. I know Arabic. I know that Arabic and Hebrew are sister languages. And and we didn't have periods and whatnot. Doesn't every new sentence begin and? Well, it's pretty common. But uh, but no, not every sentence begins with and. Well, many sentences begin and, right? But it's it's pretty darn common. Wah, okay. wah, 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 wah is what you get in the Arabic. And, yeah. and, 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 and. Right? And there are no, there's no punctuation. And today, you know, we have punctuation in modern, modern standard Arabic, and yet it's still wa 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 wa. Period wa, and the next sentence begins wa and. But clearly, these, these this is one narrative. The way, at least the way the redactors who are putting this together want us to see it that way, right? And as a matter of fact, the the text of Genesis may be later than the text of Exodus, and the parallels that we see are very much intentionally drawn for us by the redactors. Yeah, and that's a good point, too, that we, that we should cover. You know, this is just a basic idea that, you know, the basic theory of, of the construction of these books is that we have various strands, you know, four or five or more traditions coming into this, and uh, and they've been weaved, woven. They've been woven together by, by a redactor who puts it into a coherent story, more or less. There's some inconsistencies. There's some issues. There's some 
parallelisms that don't quite match up and so forth. But, uh, but in general, yes, somebody is putting all these things together into a coherent story. So some of the material is older, some of the material is, you know, closer to his time. And, uh, you know, the final stamp is rather late, you know, much later than the things that are happening, you know, in Genesis and Exodus. Okay, so let's, let's give just a brief overview. Let's look at how Exodus is structured here. We start out, the people are enslaved and they are being afflicted by Pharaoh. Moses has been raised in the, you know, in the Pharaoh's home, and the, the daughter of Pharaoh draws him out of the water and calls him Moshe because she's, because he's drawn from the water. As has been pointed out, uh, the word actually means draw her out, right? Meaning he is, he is, he's the one who draws people out, and I think, and that's an interesting idea, an interesting way to look at it because he's drawn out of the water, and then he draws the Israelites out through the water. And saves him himself, just like Christ was raised up, and so that he can then raise us up. And in the same way that we get in Genesis, order out of chaos. This is sort of a recreation, and it's the same as in uh, same as in the Noah story too, right? You get a recreation. You go th- you go back into chaos. Symbol uh, the water being a symbol of chaos. And you come out again, a new creature. Yeah. Same thing happens yeah, in the Sea yeah. Yeah. And the Christians, of course, as they later interpreted this, this was baptism, right? They see this as a, as a symbol of baptism. The flood was a symbol of baptism. Once again, we have another symbol of baptism. And uh, there's something to and, that, uh, Travis. We can say, I don't think I would say, oh, when Moses went through the Red Sea, he was baptized. First of all, he wasn't one of the ones who went under the water, right? There, there's that, that detail. But, but you do have this symbol that the baptism is a symbol of this death and this resurrection and you can say the same thing of the flood and you can say the same thing of this story yeah and that's and that's the way to look at it again you have the literal interpretation right christians christians would look at things four ways right this is the traditional christian interpretation of things you'd have the literal sense of things you would have the allegorical sense of things you'd have the moral sense of things and you would have the anagogic sense of things the literal one is what actually happened. What does the scripture say happened? What's the fact here? And then the allegorical way is, well, how does this relate to, how is this a sign of Christ and the church and so forth? And then the moral one is, well, what sort of ethical moral teachings can we get out of this? And then the last, the anagogical one is, how does this prefigure our journey in life? How does this uh, show what God's plan is for us? And the Exodus was was the perfect example of, you know, these sort of things. In fact, when Dante has to explain to Con Grande, Big Dog, you know, his name sounds more uh, venerable in, in Italian than it does in English. But when he has to explain to Con Grande um, how to read the comedy, he says this. He says, uh, the, the work is not simple, but is, it is polysemous, that is, having many meanings. For the first meaning is that which one derives from the letter, so it's literal, and then the second's allegorical or mystical. So when we look at uh, these lines, when, Egypt, when Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from people of strange language, Judah was his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. If we look only at the letter, this signifies that the children of Israel went out of Egypt in the time of Moses. If we look at the allegory, it signifies our redemption through Christ. If we look at the moral sense, it signifies the turning of the soul from the sorrow and misery of sin to a state of grace. If we look at the anagogical sense, it signifies the passage of the blessed soul from the slavery of this corruption to the freedom of eternal glory. And it really is wonderful to be able to read scripture that way and not be tied into what is a single meaning. What is the one way to look at this? Usually the, the literal one, right? Yeah. Which is problematic, as as we understand the the Bible today. That's that's already problematic. It's maybe it's probably not even the intention of the authors, as I've as I've mentioned on the Come Follow Me podcast on our sister podcast. You know, I don't know that I know that the that the ancients didn't have the tools to write history the way we do because they didn't have knowledge of foreign languages, they didn't have anthropology, and they didn't have archaeology, and those are essential tools for that project that we call history in the way we do it today. But most importantly, I don't know that they had any interest in doing history, right? They, their, their interest is in explaining 
in telling a story that explains how things became the way they are, and this is what's called etiology, or ideology, not to be confused with ideology, right? Yeah, yeah, this idea that things have, you know, that we explain the beginnings of things. And this is why when, when we begin this story, I think it's important to, to think of Exodus as the beginning of the story of the Bible, even though 50 chapters earlier at the beginning of Genesis, we got in the beginning. But this is something that we say to give an explanation for how we got here in Egypt, enslaved, in bondage, right? And how did this happen to us? And so we go back and we tell the story. And again, it may be that, that this was even written, that Genesis was even written after Exodus, which is to the point, right? Yeah. I mean, the, yeah, the idea, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that, that the idea is to give meaning and, you know, order and, and that sort of thing. And that's something that we miss. We, we miss this sort of ability to locate ourselves in the great plan of things, to know what came before, what's coming after. And, uh, and that's something that ancient people did far better than we do. And, you know, we've, Shiloh has been on the podcast and we've talked about the stories that we tell ourselves. We do tend to tell ourselves stories. I was listening to an interview uh, Jordan Peterson did with Angus Fletcher of Project, what's his project called? Something to do with stories. He studies stories and he's rejected the, the medieval way of, of literary criticism, which is predominant to this day, which is... You and I, Travis, read the text. We each get our own interpretation out of it that really just matches up with our ideology that we had going into it, and then we argue about it. And what Angus Fletcher wants to do, and he's become known as a heretic by literary critics for this reason, is he wants to, he knows, we all intuit that these stories, they give us courage, they give us inspiration. He wants to know how this works, so he's taking rather a scientific approach. And he points out that it may be I think he's saying it is the case. He's saying it is the case that we actually think in narrative. It's not just that we tell stories when we go to write it down. It could be that. He's saying that we actually think in narrative. And so I think, you know, literary critics would call this narrative fallacy. But the fact is, you and I tell ourselves stories about what's happening to us. And I think it's a way, isn't it a way to, if it's true, it's a way to to deal with, to parse out what it is that we're experiencing in reality, which we can't actually really take in all at once, right? And to, and also to put ourselves in, in a timeline, which arguably wasn't always done by, by humans, right? But we have this, he, Fletcher calls it a technology. Storytelling is a technology. It's had its, had its, its technological innovations. Uh, he goes through 25 of them in his book, Wonderworks. Yeah, that's that's a fascinating idea. I, I really like that. I'll have to take a look at that book. And it, and it really is, you know, I think of, uh, you know, what Thomas Mann said about Freud, where he used myth as a sort of like a diving bell, like a diving suit to go down into the subconscious, right? It gave him a way to get in and a way to orient and a way to explore these things. And, uh, and I think the storytelling has to do that. It has to enrich our lives it has to strengthen our lives and, and everything else and, and, and analyzing things is, is taking things apart right we need more synthesizing we need more bringing in of, of uh, things to build us up well and i think you know in my experience in my brief experience reading the the old testament closely with the responsibility of teaching it which is always a great way to learn you know as i've as i've been co-hosting the podcast with ben peterson it's really, I've, 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 I've analyzed the stories, of course, but what, what's happened as I've done that is I've been able to, at the same time, to synthesize, again, as you were saying, Exodus, this, this story that, that we're dealing with, where we're just in Egypt and in bondage, with what comes before, right, with the Canaan and with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and going back to the creation, and well, through Noah's story, all of it, to actually see how it all comes together in one narrative. And this is what the, whether it's what happened or not, this is what whoever put these texts together in this way wants us to see. On the one hand, there's that, right? And comparing, I can compare that again to Dante and what Dante intended in writing the Commedia, right? And then there's also the way that we read it today, and not just we today, but me, the way I read it today in a personal way. And 
again, that's going to be valid for me, whatever it is, because it's going to speak to me in a way that's personal. Yeah. You know, as you, as you were talking, I was thinking of, you know, they've shown how families that can create a, a sort of family story, right? This, this is what our family's about. This is where our families come from. This is what we've been through. Gives the children of the family a much higher sense of self-worth and confidence and so forth. And the story doesn't even need to be a good story. It can be bad things, like bad things have happened to us. We've done wrong things, but this is who we are. And uh, even even a story that's not an ideal story still gives you a sense of belonging, a sense of place, and a sense of, of confidence. And you know your anxiety levels go down, and, and everything else uh, you know is better. And th- and that's exactly how the Bible is, right? I mean, Jacob, right? He is the father of the house of Israel. He is Israel. He's not a really a good person, right? I mean, there's really nothing in his life that makes you say, well, he's actually, you know, a fine upstanding person. I mean, there's really no episodes like that, right? I mean, he's a trickster. He's a cheater. He's a, you know, you know, just not a good, I mean, he's, a, he's doing kind of black magic sort of stuff, you know, or at least magic sort of things and all things that, uh, you know, later on they wouldn't approve of, but he was, that's still the story. That's still our story. I mean, David, you know, he goes from, you know, leading a, a robber, robber bandits and so forth to, uh, you know, to being the ideal king of it, uh, you know, even with all of his faults. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because this, this is the founding story of the Judeo-Christian tradition, right? And there are other founding stories out there. There's the Aeneid that was the founding story of, of the Rome, uh, of the Romans, of Rome, of, of this is what makes Romans Romans, right? Is this shared story. There were other founding myths like this. And so this is the story that is the story of us as Christians. It starts with this story. Yeah. And this is the central story of all three monotheistic faiths, right? Of, of Judaism, of Christianity, and of Islam. Yeah, this is where, where we go from God being the God of just two or three people, right? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is now the God of a, of a people who follow him. And, that, and that's the story of Exodus. God taking these people and making them his. And them covenanting to be his people and to follow him and uh, and so forth. So, yeah, you know, Carol Meyer says, you know, you could you could say this is the most important book in the entire Bible. And I, she's not saying that just because she was writing a book on Exodus, but because, uh, you know, this is the foundation of, of so much that, you know, the gathering of Israel that's so important to us, you know, all comes from, you know, the the groundwork laid here. Travis, I remember you saying uh, when we recorded the episode on Exodus 1 through 6 on Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me that there was someone who was a literary critic who was, a, is he the father of literary criticism? He was. He said that, that Exodus was what? Yeah, so yeah, so Northrop Fry said, you know, Exodus is, is basically the only thing that happens in the Bible. The only thing that happens in the Bible. Who was Northrop Fry? No, I mean, you know, probably the the most famous literary critic of, of the past century. Yeah, the author of The Anatomy of Criticism, right? Yeah. Yeah, so we have the individual instance of the Exodus, of Israel leaving Egypt, but this is a theme, uh, you know, that happens throughout the scriptures uh, over and over where, I mean, the Exodus really is a conversion, right? You are having to leave something behind and go towards something else. You have to leave the way you were living. You were have you have to leave uh, a place, a thing, something that's holding you back. That's that's been ruling your life. It's been controlling everything, and uh, change it now. You know, one of the ways that I know to identify if if you're listening and you don't know what that is, it's the thing that you're not willing to talk about. Whatever it is that you're not willing to talk about is running your life. That's usually how it works. Can you explain that a little bit more? How do you how do you find out what that thing is? Sure. Let's say for example in in your family, this hasn't been the case in my family that I know of. And by the way, see that's the thing is you may not know it. Right? In my family, there hasn't been sexual abuse that has come out, right? But if this is something that's going on, it tends to be something that that doesn't come out until it does, right? It's going to be something that's kept, that's not talked about. 
even if people know about it, they're not talking about it. And, and talking about it is the beginning of healing. We can think of Cain and Abel. God is coming to Cain to give him the opportunity to, to express himself, right? To actually talk about what he's done so that he can heal him. There's this idea of shouting the sins from the rooftops that we think is some kind of punishment. No, this is a mercy because whatever has been hidden is now out in the open and now we can deal with it. Because while it's hidden, it's running our lives. You see? Yeah. And that's the idea behind confession too. And, and just, you know, just being able to talk about things The the more, you know, the more embarrassed we are of something, the more likely we are to continue in it. And I mean, the more it holds us. And I think that's exactly, I think that's exactly what you're saying there. That's so this is true for all of us. Uh, there's something, right? There's something that that's holding us back. There's something that that is, in some sense, we're in bondage, and it's usually it's sin, right? So Travis, when we talked about again episode, uh, the episode that we recorded on Exodus one through six, where you gave an overview of Exodus, you mentioned the ways in which Exodus has been read by different groups of people in different ways, and and emphasizing, and this is why I wanted to have you on, on this podcast and talk about our own personal exodus, the way that it's been read by different peoples over time. I wanted to ask you to go into that a little bit, the mystics, you know, the spiritual readings, these kind of things. Yeah. So in the mystical theology, Dionysius uses, he boils down the experience of Moses into one paragraph, which he then uses as to illustrate the whole pattern of the mystical ascent this found foundational experience for all mysticism, the, the true goal of a mystic, which is to, you know, go through these different levels of progression until you become one with God. Now he's looking at Moses, particularly on Mount Sinai. And he really has, you know, we can divide, and the mystics really divided this ascent to Sinai into three parts. And it's interesting because we have this three-part division all through the book of Exodus, right? We can look at the whole book as a three-part, you know, scheme where we have the Exodus, we have the experience on Sinai, and then we have the plans and building of the tabernacle. And so, and so that itself can be looked at as the trend, as the template for the mystical vision, where first we have to have purification, right? And then we have contemplation or uh, learning and thinking and contemplating and looking at, uh, you know, looking towards God. And then we have the temple or the tabernacle where we actually are united into the presence of God and become one with him in some way. And so that's the overall progression of the book of Exodus. And then every episode can be, you know, has those same elements in it. So when we go to Sinai, we again have a three-part division where you have the people laid out all around the mountain. You know, every, you know, the whole nation of Israel is laid out at the base of the mountain. They can't go up the mountain, except for the elders who are prepared enough that they can go halfway up. And then Moses goes all the way up, and at that point he is able to commune and become one with God. So much so that when he comes off the mountain, he has to cover his face because he's glowing so brightly. And that's uh, and that for the mystics was you know is a perfect example of what the mystical experience is. It you know when we become one with God, you know when we become divine ourselves, you know our fundamental substance doesn't change, but we take on characteristics of God. It's like Moses was still a man, but now he's infused with this. Another mystical image was you know you put iron into the fire, and now it starts to take on the characteristics of fire. It glows itself and looks like fire, even though it remains metal. So the ancient uh, mystical and Christian ideas of deification, of becoming like God or, or becoming, in a way, gods ourselves, is, is different from the Latter-day Saint one. It's more of a participation in the nature of God. So we have this sort of a tripart division of the Mount of Sinai. And then the third part of the book is the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is divided the same way, where we have a, an outer courtyard where everybody can be and then we have uh, the the holy place in the temple, and then we have the holy of holies. So we ha- that only that that is where you actually go into the presence of God. 
And when you're outside of that, you know, only the priests can go, only those who are pure and so forth. So, Travis, you mentioned as one of the foundational texts of this way of thinking, these, you know, pseudo-Dionysius' thought, is it, did you say that Plato's cave, you mentioned Plato's cave, right? This is an episode in Plato's Republic, book 10 of Plato's Republic. That's part of what goes into this because, you know, as a, as a professor of philosophy, specializing in Islamic philosophy, I can't help but hear Neoplatonism in this. And then the question, so I'd like you to, if you would address that question, are we looking at Neoplatonism here? And can you tell us a little bit about that? And then if that's the case, then are we mingling the philosophies of men with scripture? And how do we address that? Which is, which is a common, uh, th- that refrain, right? I think it's, there's a misunderstanding there that we should address. Yeah. Okay. So those are, those are great questions. So we are definitely dealing with um, the, the philosophical milieu of, milieu of the time is Neoplatonism, right? Plotinus is generally seen as the founder of Neoplatonism. He's, you know, third century AD, right? So to, you know, flourishes around 220 uh, AD. And he shapes Platonism. And it's, it's the form that he gives it that's picked up by the Christians of this time that we're looking at. Right? These are educated men who are Christians, and they have to reconcile both scripture and philosophy. And that's their goal. And that, you know, particularly these two authors we've talked about, Pseudo-Dionysius, Gregory of Nyssa, that is, that is one of their main preoccupations, is how do we take, uh, you know, make Christianity legitimately, uh, you know, intellectually satisfying and, and legit for, you know, the Greek-speaking world and so forth. Now, one of the things that Plotinus does is he comes up really with this tripart, uh, tripartite division of, of, of metaphysics, right? Where we have the one which is... Of reality. The, of reality, which is the, the one which is the origin of everything. All you can say about it is that it's good. You, you know, you can't give it any sort of description. It is just what it is. I am that I am. Yeah, exactly. Now, Plotinus was thought to be a lapsed Christian, right? So his his uh, teacher uh, Ammonisakis was was a la- was thought to be a, a, a lapsed Christian. That's right. That's right. His teacher was thought to be a lapsed Christian. It's interesting because in, in some sense it it becomes hard to say then whether Christianity becomes Neoplatonized or Neoplatonism becomes Christianized. Is that fair? Yeah, and it's and, not. And by the way, the, the Neoplatonism isn't only an influence on. Christian mysticism, it is also an influence on Jewish and Islamic mysticism as well. Yeah, it is It is the framework for all mysticism that comes afterwards. If we think of, of philosophy, and I think we can think of philosophy this way as sort of an operating system, right, in terms of how, how we think about things, this is the operating system that's prevalent at this time, right? This is the, this is the way people thought. People who are thinking, right? This is the way they thought. It wasn't, not everybody's uh, a philosopher, but being a philosopher then wasn't so much about, you know, uh, ivory tower pondering imponderables, right? This is about uh, how to live. And in this case, how to actually commune with the divine, right? We can think of ancient philosophy as uh, a way of life. We can think of it as akin to religion today. Whereas religion in antiquity looks more like patriotism today. Religion is about the relationship between man and the state, and philosophy is about the relationship between man and ultimate reality. That's extremely well put. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, Pierre Hadot, if you want to read more about this, uh, you know, wrote the book, you know, Philosophy is a Way of Life. Yes, Philosophy is a Way of Life, an excellent book. The eponymous um, essay is philosophy as a way of life and can be found uh, in PDF on the internet. Yeah, philosophy really was, you're so right on, on everything you said there. Even, even when you would go to study Plato, you know, you, you were instructed to read the dialogues in a certain order, you know, which had a progression. And the last one was the symposium which is where Plato himself describes the heavenly ascent and how to achieve it. So, you know, this is so much more than, like you say. So, yeah, philosophy as a way of life 
is understanding that is key to knowing what these guys are doing. They're they're not trying to just reconcile intellectual systems, but they're trying to take, um, you know, merge these two ways of living, these two ways of thinking about the world and so forth. Uh, and the fact that Plotinus comes up with a system where you have the one, which is the source of everything, and that, that he this overflows, this light, this goodness, this everything overflows from the one down into this next level, which is called the noose or the intellect, or we might call it the logos, right? And then that level overflows. And that, the logo, the noose, this is the realm that, uh, where Plato finds the forms, which, you know, which give the ultimate reality to everything on the earth. And then that level overflows, comes down into the earth. Plotinus has the world soul, which unites the physical and earthly material with God, you know, with, with the one. And, and Plotinus does, you know, go as far as to call the one God. So Plotinus does go as far as calling the one God. So we have the three, uh, you know, members of the Godhead, right? We have God, the Father, whom we really can't say hardly anything at all. But then we have Christ, who is the, the Logos. And then we have the world soul, which is, which is the Holy Spirit, which goes and permeates all of, all of existence. And it's not a coincidence, I don't think, that uh, Plotinus's teacher was thought to be a lapsed Christian. So we have, like, just like you say, Christianity going into philosophy, and then philosophy then influencing Christianity at that point. And it's just coming full circle. So what would you say to someone who says uh, you're, you're mingling the philosophies of man with scripture? This is something we're supposed to be leery of, right? Yeah, and, and the, the, the problem is when we are, if you, if you can take these things and look at them in such a way that you get value out of them, that they enrich your experience. As um, opposed I, to make doctrinal statements out of them? Yeah. Right. This is what I was thinking too, Travis. You know, it's, these things are true. But that doesn't mean they're doctrine. That doesn't mean they're historical any more than we know that the stories that were, the, the story of Exodus in particular that we're dealing with, or the stories in the Bible are, are true in, in a historical sense. They're always true. The scriptures are always true. Sometimes they're historically accurate, right? So we have these truths. And if we have this tripart division in the text and in the parts of the text, and you know, we're, we're not talking about Neoplatonists writing the text because Neoplatonism is much later than, right, than the, than the redaction of these texts that we have, this, these stories of the Old Testament that are put in together in this library that we call the Old Testament. But if the Christians, uh, if the early Christians are looking at that and they're seeing this other way and, and they're finding a way to think about it. So, for example, in Sufi psychology, my soul this inner, if, if there's this innermost essence that is, that is mine, that is me, right? And it has, it has direct access to God. It is in the image of God, right? It comes from God. And actually in the, in the Islamic tradition, it's thought that our soul tires of the world and must, and returns to God in our sleep. And you know what? This is traditional psychology I'm talking about. This isn't Freud. This is traditional psychology. The original psychologists were philosophers, Right? People like Aristotle. And so I don't know what happens. Nobody knows what happens when we're sleeping. This is as good an answer as any. But the point is, the most important point to take away is, is not that, yes, that's what happens, but that we can think of it that way. We can see our soul as having access to God. And then we can see this other part that is in touch with it and that is also in touch with the world through the senses. So the soul doesn't have direct access to the world. It does have direct access to God. And this outer part of us doesn't have access to God directly, but it has direct access to the world and it mediates. And if we can purify our desires and purify our, I'm thinking of, uh, when I say desires, I'm thinking of concupiscence, right? And this is about desires and desires are important because we reach for things that, that we need and desire gives us that, that way of reaching for the things that we need. And then we have irascibility, which is not anger, as, as some might think of it, but rather the ability to be the potential to become angry, which is really about pushing away the things that are harmful, right? There's, there's maybe a, a place where, where we just 
something wells up inside us of us and we say no right that's the opposite of the desire it's just pushing away and so if we can purify those the, our concupiscence our, our irascibility put things in check then we can have access to that inner part of ourselves that has direct access to god and so we're talking about purifying our soul and and so this is practical right this is this is a way and it doesn't matter that this isn't that I can't actually go inside myself and find these three parts, right? That I'm not going, you're not going to dissect me and find these three parts. And there are more theoretical texts in, in Sufi psychology that deal with things like, well, where is the soul? You know, is it material? Is it immaterial? Where is it? If I cut off your arm, does now the soul part of it goes with the, with the amputated limb or it just withdraws into the rest or it's not material and it doesn't work that way? That's not important in this conversation. So whatever it is that that we can say from a from a traditional psychological standpoint or a philosophical standpoint doesn't have to be true literally any more than the story itself has to be true literally for us to find value in it and for us to be able to to actually use it. And I'll say one more thing and that is that Brigham Young did teach us that we have to and he actually said this this way, we have to believe correctly we have to think correctly, and we have to act correctly. And that, my friends, is philosophy. To believe correctly is metaphysics. To think correctly is epistemology. And to act correctly is ethics. And he gets that system, that tripartite system of those three branches of philosophy in that order, in that way. It's uncanny what what he's saying there. And I don't know that he's thinking of philosophy when he says it, but those are the three branches of philosophy that we deal with, other than politics and aesthetics, right? Yeah, and, and I, th- I think most people don't realize that philosophy is a system like that, too. That's what you it know, is. We, yeah, we don't, we don't uh, think of it that way. You know, we, we, we study philosophy rather than be philosophers. Right, we're being philosophy. The point of philosophy is to answer the question, how do I live my life? And if you think, okay, well, I already have the answer because my religion gives it to me, it's in the scriptures, well, then you might have some trouble finding how to live just by going into the scriptures. It's not, it's not, un, it's not uncontroversial to say this, but I don't think that you can get your ethics from the Bible. I don't think you can get your ethics from the scripture. I think you have to already have them with you when you go into the text for you to then be able to accept or reject certain things is what we do, right? I don't go into the Bible and come out thinking, okay, you know what? I'm going to kill my son because he's not listening to me. And some people do, by the way. Watch out because some people do. It's not just uh, Muslims who are going into their scriptures and, and coming out with these kind of interpretations. This happens in all the religious traditions. I mean, you even have uh, violent Buddhists. If nothing else, th- there were those uh, Buddhists who were upset uh, and about how Stephen Mitchell translated uh, their texts, and they, they became upset. They're not supposed to be upset about anything. They're Buddhists, right? You're absolutely right that uh, about the way you look at scriptures and get ethics out of them, and and we see this all throughout, you know, the Talmud, where they take where the where the sages are taking these verses and explaining them giving them a meaning that's more in line with their times, right? You know, this, this says this, but how do we understand it? What does it mean, right? So you're, uh, everything's an interpretation. And that's how we can look at these mystical texts too. I mean, they're a description of a certain experience. And it can be useful to look at them. And, and uh, it gives you a different perspective from which to evaluate your own experience. Just like you know, they say you really can't understand your own language until you've learned another language. I say that all the time. It, in the same way. Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely true, especially if you learn an inflected language. Then you yes. really start to understand how your own language works. Because it forces you to pay attention to grammar. Yeah, I mean, we see things just as patterns, as habits. We're so used to them, we're so comfortable with them, we don't think about how they actually are working. We know how to use them. But once you learn another language, then you have to analyze, okay, well, this is what's actually going on. Oh, this is what I'm doing here. You know, it's not just the tradition that I put these words together in this sort of order. But the same thing with religious experience. You know, you definitely don't need to study other things to have a really full and rich spiritual life. But it does help you look at your own experience in a different way 
and maybe learn something about it. Yeah, having grown up bilingual and bicultural, I caught on to this thing you're saying, Travis, and I made it a point in, in my own education, which is something I took charge of. I'm not talking about my schooling. I'm talking about my education. Like Mark Twain, I never let my schooling get in the way of my education. And I make it a point to study opposites and to take a comparative approach. And I think a comparative approach in religion can be really useful. And that can include philosophy, as we've explained it here, which is really a way of life, which is like religion. It's that thing that binds us together and that binds us to God. Uh, When I say together, I mean with our religious community and, and that binds us to God in that way and to think about how this actually works. So, Travis, is there a way that we can that you can take us through, obviously the time uh, is, we only have so much time, but can you sort of take us through an ascent, you know, a how uh, how a mystic would take the, the story of Moses or the story of the Exodus uh, without us, you know, calling your 1-900 number and giving you our credit cards just here on the podcast? Sure. And I think, Christopher, we've got all the time in the world. All of our listeners have stopped being listeners by now. So we can keep going and not. And there's no rep, repercussions here. Trust me. All right. Uh, we, yeah. So let's let's take a look at a brief at, at a brief instance of this. So we will go back to Dionysius in the mystical theology. He's talking about, uh, you know, understanding the word of God. Uh, you know, coming to grips with how we encounter God. And he says, these, these things are only made manifest to those who travel through foul and fair, who pass beyond the summit of every holy ascent, who leave behind them every divine light, every voice, every word from heaven, and who plunge into the darkness where, as scripture pro- proclaims, there dwells the one who is beyond all things. It is not for nothing that the blessed Moses is commanded to submit first to purification and then to depart from those who have not undergone this. When every purification is complete, he hears the many-voiced trumpets. He sees the many lights, pure and with rays streaming abundantly. Then, standing apart from the crowds and accompanied by chosen priests, he pushes ahead to the summit of the divine ascents. And and yet he does not meet God himself, but contemplates, not him who is invisible, but rather where he dwells. However, his unimaginable presence is shown walking the heights of those holy places to which the mind at least can rise. But then he, Moses, breaks free of them, away from what sees and is seen, and he plunges into the truly mysterious darkness of unknowing, here renouncing all that the mind may conceive, wrapped entirely in the intangible and the invisible. He, com- he belongs completely to him who is beyond everything, here being neither oneself nor someone else, one is supremely united by a completely unknowing inactivity of all knowledge and knows beyond the mind by knowing nothing. So he's looking at Moses's ascent to Sinai, you know, ascent of Sinai and communion with God. He, he breaks everything down into this simple outline. And this is the outline of the spiritual journey, which begins with purification, then contemplation, and then union with God. Those are the three fundamental aspects that permeate uh, celestial ascent, um, you know, from at least the, the Neoplatonists on. And that's in, again, in the Christian and the Jewish and the Islamic traditions, it works the same way in Sufism. It works the same, in, the same way in Kabbalah. And it works the same way with the Christian contemplatives. So how do we do it, Travis? Well, and it's so interesting because we see, you know, we have such a focus on just the first step because that's the one that we can kind of measure, right? We can, we can say, you know, we are doing this, these things, and we are not doing those things. And we can see kind of how pure we are and how, uh, how pure we're becoming. And we have kind of milestones and we have markers and this sort of thing. But it's sort of like polishing the lamp of a, of a, the, the glass, the globe of a lamp, right? You, you, you polish it, but then you have to fill it. You have to turn on the light. You have to bring the light into it. And if we don't, then we're forgetting the whole point of the purification in the beginning. You know, this purification is a discipline. It's a practice. It's a yoke. It's something that we are doing to strengthen our minds and pull our spirits 
you know, our minds away from the things of the world and being able to focus them. And then you can go into contemplation, which is this sense of viewing, thinking. Uh, you know, I mean, it really comes from theoria. You know, contemplation is, is just a translation of the Greek theoria, which is just observation, which is just viewing. You're looking, you're focusing. And at that point, you can have a breakthrough where God comes into your life, where you are actually filled with grace, where you're filled, where you actually come in contact with God and you're transformed. But this is looking inside yourself, isn't it? I mean, you're talking about looking into your own soul. This doesn't happen by the, although there are signs, you know, the Quran says that God puts signs that point to him both in the world and in all of nature, we can see signs, right? And also, you know, in also within our own souls. And so there's both, right? So, but I, I don't think that you find it by contemplating the man-made, although there, there are inspiring, you know, beautiful, there's art, there's architecture, right? But, but it's not in the mundane, put it that way. It's in the sublime. It's in contemplating the sublime, that which is either, either God's creation, whether it be in our own souls or in nature, or whether it be in those creations that are inspired by God that point to the sublime. And, and so in contemplating those, we can get, we can catch a vision of God, right? This is the idea. And, you know, when, and backing it up to the, the previous step of, of purification, you know, I mentioned that the soul is, I think, did I say it's a mirror? You could think of it as a mirror, right? And, if, if it's not pure, then you can think of it as rusted. And so for the idea then of purification is to polish the mirror such that it can reflect, right? So that it can actually reflect the divine nature that is, that, that is in it, right? So it can actually reflect God truly. And so it's this polishing of the mirror that's the purification. And it's a, it's a preparatory step, right? And it's not sufficient in and of itself. And it usually happens by following the exoteric rules, right? The, the, the moral rules that, that religion gives us. But those exoteric rules alone are not enough. They prepare us for the esoteric experience, but they're an empty shell, as the Sufis would call them. The inner kernel is in, the, is in contemplation, is found through contemplation, and is in an experience of God. And an experience of God is immediate. It's not something that, that is in words. You can't find it in a book because it's, it can't be put in words. Those who have had these experiences have and have shared them have had to put them into words in some sense. And you get Joseph Smith has multiple versions of the same, what we call the first vision. Try putting that in words. Whatever it is he experienced, that theophany, cannot actually be contained in human language. Yeah, boy, there's so much to unpack there that you've said. Um, you know, one thing that came to mind was, you know, Lorenzo Snow was visiting a, a, a congregation of the church and he looked out over the congregation. He said, I'm looking out over as good a people who have ever lived on the earth. You know, you are as righteous as anybody who's ever lived, but are you enjoying the spiritual gifts? Are you enjoying the gifts of the spirit? And the answer is no. And he says, why not? Because you are not seeking after them. You know, we think, we think that if we do enough purification, it'll automatically come. Right. But that is something that the, the, that the mystics focus on over and over and over again. You have to have the purification and then you have to have this desire. You have to seek. You have to just be willing it. You have to be, you know, just full of this desire that overwhelms everything. And that's when you can really have these uh, wonderful experiences. I tell you too, Travis, as a practicing Sufi myself, my spiritual guide, right, my sheikh, he's not, it's not that he's not concerned with, with, my, with me keeping the outer practices, right, with my morality, but the focus isn't there. The focus is in contemplation. So I think we can actually take these things in some sense out of order. It may be that if I'm not living a moral life, actually, I think the reason why he's doing this is because, as you've pointed out, I think I could be in the room with the rest of the people with Lorenzo Snow, and he would say the same thing, right? I'm, I'm not a bad person, Travis, right? I have my faults, 
but I'm not a bad person. I'm living right, so to speak. And it may be then that I need to focus more, as you said, on claiming what that has prepared me for, to actually go out of my way, to actually go to the next step, to actually sit with God and to contemplate and to meditate or whatever it is that, that I do in my in my Sufi practice, right? That is going to give me the opportunity to experience God. And then it may be, because this doesn't have to work in a straight line, it may be that as I get a taste, as the Sufis call it, a taste of God, that I may realize out of that experience that there's something more that I need to do in purifying myself, that there's some outer practice that I need to improve on. And so I work in a virtuous circle in this way, not in a matter of uh, trying to be perfect enough that this thing just, that God is just going to show up for me, as you said, you know, without me doing anything to look for him. He's just going to show up because I've done so much where, and then really what I do is I'm focusing all of my attention in this purification process, as it were, which by the way, I'm not really even focused in, in, in any real way because I'm just following rules. And, and so part of the contemplation actually bleeds into the purification because if I'm just doing the things, but I'm not thinking about what I'm doing or why I'm doing it, you see how, what I mean? That, 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 that contemplative part bleeds into the the purification part. So we don't have to think of these as in a line, and we don't have to think of them as that. We can think of them as porous, right? They they, they touch each other, they bleed into each other, and it, and it becomes this this ascent, right? This ascent that is this that is this virtuous circle, if you will, versus the vicious circle of of the blaming soul, as the Sufis call it which is a soul that blames others and itself. And this is the Satan, right? The accuser, the accuser that is part of my psyche that is going to keep me down and is going to tell me I haven't done enough in the purification department to even think about thinking about the contemplation part. Yeah, and I think when we look at uh, the goal of purification, when we, when we realize that, the, that, it's, that it leads to something else, then it makes it easier to to deal with our imperfections right whereas you know if we look at it like like the i the goal of everything is to be perfect is to be pure is to be you know living everything right then we look at these things as huge flaws and we and we beat ourselves up about them we can't forgive ourselves up but when we look at it like okay well the reason i'm doing this is to get here is to get this goal then i can look at it like okay well i'm on a progression and I need to work at this. And, you know, Plotinus, I love the image that he uses where he says, you know, you look into yourself and then you have to shape yourself. You, you look into yourself and say, what is ugly? What is wrong about me? And you cut that away. You're, you're like a sculpture. You're like a sculptor that sees this image and, and needs to cut the stone away to get to it. And that's what you're constantly doing as you meditate, as you go into yourself as you look at your life and as you see your own soul, you can actually get real and get insight and know what you need to change. And then you can look at that and say, okay, I need to change this to be able to progress to this next step. And so it is exactly like you're saying, it is a circular, it's, it's like a wheel going uphill, right? I mean, it's up and down, but the progression is upwards. The beautiful image that you painted for us, Travis, reminds me of what I think it was Michelangelo who said about how he did what he did in sculpting, right? For Michelangelo, the, what we see as the product of his work, he could see all along in the stone. He just had to take away everything that was not that, right? Is that, is that, some, isn't that something he said? I wonder if he got that from Plotinus via Marsilio Ficino, who was his contemporary and who, and who translated Plotinus into Italian and in the in Italian Renaissance in Florence. Do you know? It's it's quite possible. You know, it's, it's also something that, that, again, these are just descriptions of mental states that can be. Sure. Right? I mean, this is just a description of an experience. Well, that's a good image to end with, Travis. Do you have anything we else you want to add? No, we, we, we can't end now, Christopher. We're just getting started because, see, we haven't even talked about Dante, right? Okay, well, we can we end in the next few minutes? I mean... The, the only other thing that I would say is, you know, circling back to, you know, the story of the Exodus is 
you know, to put yourself into this situation and look at the episodes of how the Israelites have to go through this stage where they leave Egypt and yet that's not the end of the story. I mean, that's just the first step. They've, they've had a conversion, which, which literally means to turn away, right? The only thing else I would say, Christopher, is that when we look at the Exodus, it's so valuable to see the Israelites and how they struggle with this and realize that these are the same sort of things that we go through. They, they've had a conversion experience. They have left the situation behind, but that's definitely not the end of their journey. They have to travel through the wilderness for 40 years. They look back, they fall back, and, and they're struggling, struggling, struggling for 40 years until they get into there. And, uh, you know, when they finally get there, then they can see the point of everything they've gone through. Even, even the time that you would think is wasted in this time of uh, bondage and so forth, um, you know, for them, it preserved them as a people. Had they not been slaves, they would have been assimilated into Egypt and lost as a people forever. And that's a key thing I think that we can look at too, as we're trying to struggle out of these situations in our lives. We look at all the wasted time. We look at all the, uh, you know, loss and everything that we've had because of what we've been doing. But we need to realize that there's positive things that come out of even that aspect of the journey. You know, even if it's just an appreciation for what's to come. Well put, Travis. Travis, thank you for being on the show with me again. For those who haven't heard uh, the other episodes with Travis, we have episode 15 on classical contemplation and episode 16 from Hell to Heaven, Dante and the Journey of the Soul. Travis also published an article on Neoplatonic Ascent in Dante's Comedy. Is that right, Travis? Yeah. And that paper is entitled... Uh, the Purification of Love, a Heavenly Ascent from Plato to Dante, something like that. And you can find that also in PDF online. Yeah, it's on academia.edu if you want to do an official way. All right. Thank you for being with me, Travis. Thanks for having me. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Travis Pack. Have a great week. <laughs>